What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, what are you doing over there? Well, you know, it's a brave new world, apparently. So there's plenty of indoor activities for everybody. Yeah, Yeah. I'm just busy at my home right now, Skyping you in between my uh, online lessons with people. Yeah, that's good. I've seen that you've started to change your platform a little bit because we can't go off and do our overseas seminars or local seminars or even catch up with friends and colleagues in the park. We can actually change that to online. So there's plenty of uh, dog training opportunities for people. They Mm. can get in touch with us online. But you know what else they should do in this time of uh, difficulty and isolation? What's that? Stockpile dog training equipment. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, if they're in Australia, they can get that equipment from Ironswick Dog Quip. And if they're in North America, they could get it from Canine Dynamics. What about if they need some tasty treats for their dogs? Well, if they need tasty treats for their dogs, the best place to get that is from Bright's Bites. So they can visit our friend Mark LaPointe, the Ferminator up in Queensland, and Kylie, who's in Victoria. Absolutely. Yeah. May as well stockpile dog equipment while you're stockpiling toilet paper. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) So before we wind this ridiculous ad up, tell our people how they can find you if they're looking for you for online consultations. Yeah, you can go to my website. It's operantk9.com.au. There's a training tab and there's the book a session. You can do that there. I'm doing them over Zoom now. It's really cool. We can share screens and we can talk and mm. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, how about great. you? Are you doing that? Yeah, I'm doing a few consults. I've started doing a few. I've been approached to do a few more. So people can either contact me directly and we can set something up or they can contact my team. I've got Kana and Twisty and Tegan from Canine Evolution. They're doing online consults. And while you're still allowed to, they're doing the social distancing of one-on-one consults if people are are well and they're presenting okay. So they're going through all the correct procedures with that and we're still doing all our daycare at Pet Resorts Australia. Perfect. Yeah, there's plenty of options for people in a crisis. There's plenty of people around the world offering great services and great techniques, so take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, get on it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And it's just us again today. It is. Hmm. It's been a little while since it's been just us. But that's been good. Yeah. We've had some interesting guests on the show. We have. Hmm. It's been exciting, actually. It has been. What's well, been going on out here? Anything exciting? Well, we're trickling along. Mm-hmm. The actual girls are doing the best job that they possibly can. We've got plenty of daycare and training dogs in, which is helping prop us up. Uh-huh. And I think that's the trend for us at the moment to work in that field. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody around the world who's having to tackle with this. You're in a position where you're telling your staff, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know when we can get you back. But, you know, with this government assistance program, it's going to make it easier for us to bring on staff and be able to, or bring them back, I should say, not bring them on, Mm -hmm. but bring them back and be able to put them on a salary. So, you know, there may not be the accruable dogs here or the pets here, but we can certainly give them tasks to do in Mm -hmm. earnest of, when everything fires back up because as soon as everything fires back up, people are going to go, oh, I want to get the fuck out of here and yeah, yeah. go on holiday. That for us will be inundated at that point when people are basically saying, I need to get out of Dodge. Yeah. So, so we've got to, to be ready. ready. Yeah. So what I've been saying to the staff is let's get ready for it. Let's use this time to fix what's broken, scrub the place inside and out, upside mm-hmm. down, and just get ourselves ready for the return to work. Yeah. So that'll be good and, yeah, that's pretty much it, really. So we've been keeping busy. To be honest, I thought, you know, I'm just going to be sitting around twiddling my thumbs and walking around out the back of a a desolate kennel, but that thankfully hasn't been the case Yeah, and I've been busier than ever. Yeah. I mean, the reason I've been busier than ever is because I've been researching how to keep my staff at work and, Mm -hmm. you know, what all the government benefits are and what we have to do legally now that they're changing all the rules and all the different awards. So. There's a lot involved in it. Yeah. I've been in meetings pretty much every other day. We're doing a lot of online meetings with each other now, which is good. So, yeah. 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 
as we were just discussing before, the hard part is kind of as you're canceling events, then sort of trying to figure out how and when to rebook them. Mm. You know what I mean? Because you just don't know when things are going to open up, but also when things do, the things that were already booked for then have a priority because they're already locked in place. Things yeah. are sold. And so it's a tricky time, but we it, it, it is out. a tricky time, but it's like everything, you know, it's part of, we talk about in training, the importance of adaptation and we're, in the exactly. midst of that. And that's one of the rules of life, adapt or die. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're all in a forced position of having to do at the moment. So adaptation is a very important part of, of life. Exactly. That's going to be the thing that people are going to have to do with all these COVID puppies that they're getting is learn a new form of adaptation for socialization. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And, you know, pressure is the ultimate driver of adaptation. Absolutely. Right? You don't adapt when things are easy. You just sit yeah. there comfortably. So it's we're all being pushed to figure out new things and find new ways we were talking about this the other day on an independent, it was just a, you know, one of those COVID conspiracy kind of things. Oh, yeah. But I was saying to people the other day that fear is a delicious motivator yeah. to get people <laughs> off their ass to do things. Yeah, yeah. Fear is pressure. Mm. That's, that's what it is. It's a form of pressure. There was a lot of theories floating around about, you know, how people are driven to get motivated because they're finally scared enough to get up off the couch. Mm -hmm. These are people who are lazing around and being lumps for most of their life. All of a sudden now they're out exercising and, oh, I want to get out and run around the park and so forth because fear has pushed them in a new direction. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what it actually does. Yeah. I think it kicks your adrenaline or your adrenal glands into gear and you basically think to yourself, well, maybe I need to do something different than what I've been doing. I think we're kind of designed to live that way a little bit, right? Because, you know, you you, it's when people make up uh, problems in their lives and that sort of thing. It's because you're designed to live in a sort of heightened state of arousal. But that state of arousal was, you know, am I going to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger? And so now when things are so easy, mm. people were like, well, I have to, surely that that's a microaggression that you just pulled at me. Like I have to find <laughs> something to be- Something to entertain to, myself. To be or, concerned about. Mm. You're always concerned about it. And now people have a real thing to be concerned about, whether they're concerned about the virus or their, their income or whatever it is that they're concerned about. It's a real concern. Yeah. And suddenly like- all the bullshit seems to have just disappeared from the earth. Isn't that funny? That, right? Isn't like, that funny? Like there is no more political correctness. Yeah, that's and, all gone. And, and, right? and, which is great. We all needed a holiday from that, to be honest. And yeah. that's one thing of this disastrous coronavirus bullshit that we can be thankful for is the political correctness has hit the ether. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all it took was a pandemic. Yeah. International economic crisis. What an absolute blessing out of a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Mm. Hey, I've got a topic I want to talk about today. Yeah, I know you told me the topic and we haven't really discussed it further than that. So tell everyone what it is. All right. So I want to talk about the point of diminishing return. Mm -hmm. Explain yourself, sir. Well, here's what happened. This is how I've come to be. Yeah. So do you remember we had a dog in the club that was only ever good for one session of bite work, right? You bring the dog in and- Mm -hmm would go like quite okay for one session. And then, you know, we, we normally would do two rounds for everybody. And every time this dog came in for the second round, it was a disaster, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was just, it was terrible and like a different dog. So we just said, okay, well, you know, the dog's no good for a second session. That's fine because in competition, it's a sport dog in competition. You only hit the field one time. So then we started doing things where, you know, changing decoys, because that will happen in competition. So you bite this one, now you bite this one. The dog really had trouble adapting to that as well. So it plagued me for a long time and I tried a lot of different things to figure it out and it really was on my mind for a long time. It was a problem that I was really trying to solve Mm. uh, because I'd never seen that like so striking in a dog before that could do really good bite work and then such terrible bite work in the same session or if if it was a new decoy or in the next session so poorly, right, even if it was the same decoy. Mm. And so, you know, that was years ago and I spoke to Bart about it and we were sitting in the car one day, you know, when you have a really significant conversation with someone and you you like remember where you were. Yep. So like we're pulling into the cross city tunnel here in Sydney. Like I remember the exact spot and I was explaining it to him and he goes, ah, and I told him everything that we'd done trying to get this right. And like going back to basics on so many things and using no pressure and using a lot of pressure, like everything that had rattled through my brain. And he basically told me, he goes, ah, that's a problem of the dog. There's no changing that. Right. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but like, why? Because if it's a problem of the dog, then like we can work around this. We work with all kinds of dogs. You know, it's a, it's a sport dog club. We don't have the luxury of just get rid of that dog, get a new one. We adapt. And this is where we develop our skills. And he says to me, nah, you're not changing that. He says, I don't fully understand it, but it's something to do with the dog's dopamine. And 
I just kind of was like, okay, well, fair enough. That's what he meant. He's right. It's Bart Bell and he's telling me about a dog, whether it bites or not. I'm not going to fucking question But you know anything. that through the physical application as well. Well, that's it. But he said, he said, I don't fully, like, I can't explain it to you, but I know it's something to do with the dog's dopamine. Right. So yesterday, I'm listening to this podcast. It was called The Molecule of More, if anybody wants to check it out. The Molecule of More. Of More, right? Yep. So it was a psychology podcast, and that was the episode was called The Molecule of More. And it was these two guys that have written a book. I can't remember their names. I should, probably should have researched that. But Well, um, people can look it up now. That yeah, they can the listen title. to the, yeah. the thing. And it's about dopamine. Yep. And they were explaining something in that, and they were talking about dopaminergic pathways and how dopamine is all about anticipation. It's not having, mm-hmm. right? It's not about getting it. It's not, yeah. yeah. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So they use a couple of really cool terms that I thought, this is fantastic. I'm so happy that I have listened to this podcast. Mm -hmm. This is going to give me some new language that I can use when I'm teaching this stuff, right? Because everything that I sort of know about dopamine, I refer back to the dopamine jackpot study, Robert Spolsky. And, you know, I've really gone through that in a lot of detail. But this is some new stuff and these guys have a book and I'm thinking I'll I'll get the book Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I'll find out more about this dopamine stuff. And then they said something about, you know, they're just some language they use that I think is going to be very helpful for me in the future. They say dopamine makes promises that it can't keep. Right. So they were talking not about dogs at all. Like, you know, so many of these studies that we take big, we draw a lot of information from the people who are interested in doing those studies. They don't give a shit about dogs. Right. Yeah. They're about people. And they were talking about love in that dopamine is the provider of lust. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you fall in love with somebody, that overwhelming desire to be with them and and that kind of thing is is a product of dopamine. Mm Mm-hmm. And that sort of honeymoon period, funnily enough, tends to last sort of nine to 12 months. So there's probably like a biological or an evolutionary reason for that kind of thing. Yep. And then you're relying on other brain chemicals to take over, to keep the promises that dopamine made. Mm -hmm. Right. I love you forever. We're going to be together forever. This is the best. You're my partner, blah, blah, blah. When the dopamine stops coming in the presence or the anticipation of that person, now we're relying on oxytocin and that sort of thing to keep us in love with those people, mm-hmm. right? So there was sort of some interesting stuff. Uh, and dopamine makes promises it can't keep, that sort of thing. I'm going to use lines like that when I'm teaching people about dogs in the future. And I was thinking, this is fucking great. Like I've really, I'm glad I listened to this podcast. And then they, you know, I won't bother sort of going into the hardcore details of it, but they explained some things that made me understand exactly what was happening in that dog's brain, right? And that the dog probably didn't actually like bite work. It liked the idea of bite work. Yep. And it was once it was an immediately satiated by it, it had no it desire had to do it again, yeah. right? And that's why it couldn't do a second session because yep. it was like excited about it. And then I wish that we still had access to that dog because what I would like to do is can change the scenario completely on the dog for the second session and see what effect that had, right? See whether I could now, you know, reactivate the dopamine pathway by the dog comes out, goes into the shed to do the first session. And then instead of doing it in the shed, we go to the front of the property and do it out there. So the dog goes like a whole nother way and is like, oh, I'm going somewhere new. This is exciting. This is dopamine. This is mm-hmm. dopaminergic, right? And yep. like, this will change the outcome for what's happening. And I could have played with that. And then- I'm listening to this podcast and they're going on, they're talking and like, it was really profound to me for the first 10 to 15 minutes. Right. And I was like, wow, this is fucking amazing. This is stuff I'm definitely going to use mm. this. I wish I had access to that dog. This would have changed the way I do things. And then like they got more technical and they were talking about more human stuff. And what I found was that it started out, I started out with a round peg fitting in a round hole. It fit perfectly to what I was trying to, what I had noticed in the past. And it made me understand something. Yep. And then I was like, no, I already, I was told this was dopamine. I knew this already, mm. right? I hadn't put it together in as fine a detail as that, but Bart had told me, he goes, that's a dopamine issue of the dog, right? Yep. And I didn't understand that, you know, maybe there were ways that I could manipulate that. And now I sort of do. But then the more they were talking about this stuff and they became more technical about it, this dopamine stuff, and they were talking about people who like schizophrenia, bipolar can be an issue of too much dopamine. Right. Can be- That's fascinating. Um, it's very, very interesting. I'll have to listen to it. Yeah, they were talking about how, like, imagine you see, like, a, a pebble in a puddle of water, and mm-hmm. that might, to you, like, a normal uh, person with normal brain chemistry goes, that's interesting, that's a pedal in the puddle of water. Mm-hmm. But someone who has very highly dopaminergic pathways could lo- and were a creative might take inspiration from that pebble to and write- photograph a, it. Well, yeah, or, mm-hmm. or to, their example was to write a poem about it. Right. And then if you just dial up the dopamine just a little bit more- 
that could be then like the person sees it and then is convinced that they are a God who created that pebble and put it there. And like it, it can lead to bipolar schizophrenic type right. behaviors. Okay. Wow. And a lot of, yeah. And a lot of the medication that is in the treatment of those conditions are, down. are actually just controlling dopamine. Mm. Isn't that right. fascinating? That, totally. You know, something that we produce ourselves can transform your way of thinking from what we consider normal into a bizarre application. Totally. Mm. Right. So it was all very interesting to me. Mm. And then I realized I was now trying to put a square peg into a round hole because mm-hmm. I was trying to take all this information and apply it to something that I already had the answer to. Right. I knew how to get that dog to bite and work for one session. I think maybe from that I learned a potential way to get a second session out of the dog, but it would have had to heavily control the environment. Yeah. Um, and it still wouldn't have been a, a useful application because it, the dog was not going to be suitable for what we were doing anyway. But then it got me wondering about like hitting the point of diminishing return in education in dog training. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like that certainly happened for me within the space of that podcast. Within that one hour listen, I went from, wow, this is very, very interesting and I can apply it and have applied it without knowing it. And now that I know it will apply it better in a different way. Yeah. Went all the way to like making very reaching assumptions yep. and went past useful. Yep. And I wondered how many other times that's happened, right? Like how many times have we researched things beyond what is useful and relevant? And then I was interested in the idea of, well, that point is the point of diminishing return is probably different for every single person, right? Because when you're like, as a, and we talked about this with Jason the other week, right? Like when you're explaining to a client, like, Hey, this is the reason your dog's doing these things. Sometimes you just say to the person, your dog is doing this, the way to stop it is this mm. because they're not interested. They just want the fix. They're not interested in it. And, and it's our job to you know understand that. And other times we have the sit down and we talk about this is called classical conditioning. This is called operant conditioning. This is critical period of socialization. Like we, sometimes we explain it out in really detail and it's up to us to identify that in the client. Mm. But I think in the dog training community, especially with some, you know, high level thinkers in the community, we can go past the point of, Diminishing return, yeah. Right? Where mm. you you know too much that it's not actually useful to the application. In fact, perhaps it's a hindrance to the application. There's another point along the path of your conversation, which I also was intrigued and fascinated by, because I think many of us who've started in our career and training and been some way into it have all found that nemesis dog mm-hmm. that we've struggled with and had to try and come to terms with. You know, why can't I make this happen? Why can't I get this dog across the line? And what is what will it take? What do I need to change in the dog? What do I need to change in myself? And in line with the topic that you've put together, I think it's very important to identify that sometimes you just can't. Mm. And that, I guess, is it's somewhat in line with the thought of or the saying no more one more time. Because at some time you've got to just say no more at all. Mm. You know, there's no point to any of this. And You're 100% right. Sometimes people become to the point of obsessed by it where they just can't let it go. And it's the never-ending story. It just keeps evolving to a point where the person is obsessed by it and they are just on a journey of continuing to try and find the answer or look for the holy grail in it, but it never presents itself. Mm. And it somewhat becomes a tease to them. They just can't drop it. Yeah, I've seen that in quite a few people where they become so involved in the academia of it that they forget about how important the practicality side of it. And the other side to that, the flip side of that as well, is that sometimes people just aren't that involved or invested in it as you have become. If you're headway into this line of thinking, people just drop off along the path. They just Mm. think, yeah, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for a lecture in psychology. And to be honest, it got past the point of being intriguing to now it's to the point where I don't understand it. Like I don't understand the depths of where you're going to. I need an answer on why my dog won't do a sit and and a recall. And you've come back with what's the meaning of life. Yeah. And so we've gone past the point of diminishing return. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. The next layer to what I was thinking about. Hang on, before you go there. Yeah. What was the point for you that was it this podcast that stopped you from obsessing over that dog or was it was it something else? When we were really training the dog, yes. you mean? It was Bart telling me it couldn't be fixed. Yep. And like when Bart Bellin tells you a dog's not that's a function of the dog, that's yep. not gonna change, you take that 
Yeah. <laughs> you take that advice on board. It's fair enough. Um, and how to work within it. It wasn't like stop training the dog. Yep. It was do less actually. Yeah. Which the conversation as we had it in that moment was then on about how, you know, we often like bite work is rewarding to, to a dog that likes to do it. It is a reinforcer. Yep. And, you know, we're often reinforcing our dogs way too much. Mm. In fact, like I'm more convinced than ever, the more I study about dopamine and understand how it works is that big jackpots early on and then very infrequent, like reinforcement should only come frequently enough to keep the behavior active. That's yep. it. Right. Rather than ever satiating the dog in the, in the behavior yep. should only be given enough, just enough to keep the dog doing it. Yeah. It relates to something I've found myself referring to quite a lot as I review my own training and my own dog. This is what I'm finding a lot of time to do at the moment is mm. review my own training with my own dog. And I think something that is important to me, I think, in the realm of practicality as like I'm enjoying exploring theory really heavily. Yep. And, you know, we, we're talkers. We're, me and you are professional talkers now, like we speak on a mm. podcast. And so it's our job to understand the theory, right? So I've sort of had to put my foot into a realm of I was a very practical hands-on person, but, you know, it's a radio show, it's a podcast, we can't do practical hands-on here. That's right. And I think, you know, with like the content, the paid content and stuff that we put out, the Patreon stuff is mostly explanations mm. because we save the practical for when we have the dog there rather than showing, like for me personally, I think that I get better results when I say to people, here's a long detailed explanation rather than here's a video of me doing it with the dog, mm. right? The fusion is perfect. Like here's an explanation of it and now here's evidence that it works, but there's still, it's much better when there's hands-on and there's a dog in real life. And so you save that for a real event, right? But what I've been saying to people quite a lot lately when they're talking about building powerful responses to markers and, and getting mm. their dogs into behaviors, and I'm no longer really very interested in perfection. Yep. What I am very interested in or what I, what I would rather focus on is that good enough mm. is exactly that. There's something that I may have said it on the podcast before. I know that I say it regularly to student training groups is that perfection is an illusion of the insane. Excellence is something to strive for. Yeah. Mm. But so whatever your criteria is, what I've been trying to explain to people is that good enough is exactly that. Yep. It is good enough. Yep. Now, like when I would then, you know, I, I was having this conversation with someone and they were talking about how like supercharged they can get their marker and the dog was like flying to them and, you know, mugging them for food. And I was like, yeah, it's good enough. And they were yep. like, no, I want it perfect. And I was like, well, we don't know how the what the, perfect looks like. Yeah. We don't know what that can be with your dog. Yeah. Right. But what I know is what you, what we're looking to change, the problem that we're having with the dog and now we're going to be able to change, that is good enough. Mm. So we are beyond the point of diminishing return. Yep. Right. Any extra work that you try to put into this. Yep. Right. Of course, perhaps you could get a more powerful response from your dog. But why but, do you need it? But it's not going to serve you at this point. Yeah. Right. And so if your goal is to just have the, the highest possible result from your dog, then we're not good enough yet mm. because you want the highest possible result to the marker. But this marker is a step towards fixing an aggression issue, mm -hmm. right? And right now it is good enough to fix that aggression issue. Yep. So we only make the dog's life better mm. once we've managed to fix that aggression issue. The dog's life is not made any better by having a super powerful response to the marker. Yep. In fact, if we're going to get really deep into the dog's mind and how it works, we're actually creating a bit of anxiety and we're, we're actually maybe nice observation, diminishing the dog's uh, mm. well-being yep. by going to the, making him obsessive. Yeah. Right. We've got a good enough reaction. It's going to overpower the aggressive reaction that we have. We're yep. ready to train. Good enough is good enough. And people, I think, mistake good enough and close enough, right? Close enough is not good enough. Mm. <laughs> now, they're different things. Close enough is like, well, it's nearly there. But good enough is there. Why yep. go any further, yep. right? And for me, it's relevant to my training. I, I very much look at that because it, good enough can change. So- Let's take, for example, my dog's down in motion, right? Or down out of motion. Yeah, down in motion. So we're walking, he downs, right? Mm -hmm. That's never been especially great, right? But it's like a three-point exercise. And so, you know, he downs, he downs and he holds it. So we get two out of three. It's good enough. It's good enough. Mm. And considering all the things that he has to know and the many, many skills that he has to have, yep. that's, an, that's good enough for me. I'm happy mm. with that. But- 
now because I have the time, like we're meant to, we're actually meant to be trialing in mm. two weeks. Two that, weeks. That's yeah. not happening, right? Mm. So I've got the time and we probably won't get to trial till next year, perhaps. Mm. So he knows the exercises that he needs to know. Now that's not good enough because I have the time and energy capacity to try and get that extra point. Mm-hmm. Right. So good enough is relevant to the outcome, but, I think some people, especially in their own knowledge and in their own dog training, are striving for excellence in a key area beyond what is useful to the detriment of everything else. No, they're going for perfection. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. perfection, right? Excellence is excellence is fine. Excellence is manageable. Yeah. And it's wordplay, but I think this mm. is really – you're right to correct me there because that's very important, right? Mm. Perfection in one area – to the cost of all other. Right. Right. And you see people maybe mm. like in, so let me use that same example I was talking there, like maybe putting a lot of pressure into teaching the down. Yeah. Well, now the dog- Forsaking something else. Yeah. Now mm. the dog's unlikely to break that down no matter what and yep. may not, like may miss a bite somewhere else. Yeah. And God damn, you got those three points, but m- missing a bite somewhere else because he won't break the down, yep. that's a fail. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a contingency. Like if you have a trigger point on behavior A, how is it going to affect behavior B? Mm. I think this is something I learned very early in my apprenticeship in in becoming a trainer is that I was introduced by Boyd to the word contingency and the Mm. importance of it and how it can have dramatic effects. And especially when we're teaching new criteria in behavior, you know, like the importance of relaxing one to teach another one and then coming back to sharpen up the other, but not at the expense of the new behavior that you're trying to train. Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying this conversation. I'm really intrigued at your thinking process here. Wait till I uh, tell you about the next level. Another bomb. Wait till you get to the next Mm. level. It's something that I mean. I had to completely relax myself on dog training altogether because of my obsession when I was younger. It was at the cost of everything else. My desire to want to be the best in the village at doing what I was doing. It came at the cost of friendships, relationships, families everything because I was willing to fucking burn it all to get what I wanted. And when I realized what was happening around me, when I sort of paused for a minute and saw the effect of what was happening around me, I thought, holy shit, for training a dog, I'm forsaking everything else that's going on around me. I was enjoying myself, but then when I kind of thought, what do I do when I'm not doing this? I didn't have it around me anymore. It was gone. Mm -hmm. And that took time to rebuild all that back again. So well, you know, you can do whatever you want to do as a person, but it's an intriguing point and it only came at cost for me to realise what was happening when I was pursuing excellence and trying to get it without thinking, why Why can't I have both? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that taco ad. And, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and they're saying, oh. If they're going to have soft or hard tacos. And, yeah. and the little girl goes, why not both? <laughs> <laughs> I love but that ad. I love that ad too. And they're all throwing her up in the air yeah. like she's there. She's a genius. She's a genius. And yeah. But the reality is she is a genius because you can have both yeah. when you relax your criteria. Yeah. You know, when you're not so obsessive. So, sorry. Yeah, go on. I'm loving this. It's, well, it's great. So, here's the next layer of what I was thinking about yesterday. Yeah. Is... So those people who are go past the point of diminishing return, mm. right? Whether it's in your own education or whether it's in the behavior that you're trying to instill into the dog to get it to perfect rather than than adequate, yep. right? The pursuit of an unobtainable goal is the act of a highly dopaminergic person mm. because the reinforcement is the pursuit, not yep. the getting of it. Yes. Right. And so, Which makes sense when you find out how addictive dopamine is. Exactly, mm. right? So uh, what's interesting was, to me anyway, was that in studying dopamine, yep. I came to understand that its effects on me led me to study it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes. Right. Yep. And then what's interesting as well is that like all these things in brain chemistry, I think that uh, especially in dogs, we look at these dogs and they're slaves to their desires, right? Mm. And and that's what we want. Like we want these dogs that – like my own dog is very hyper-dopaminergic dog, I would say, because when you look at his – so he's more – like he likes the pursuit of dopamine rather than like the oxytocin that will come from from actually getting things. When you look at the way he possesses stuff, for example – 
You just see, Remy doesn't actually give a shit about having a toy. He wants to take it from you. He wants to earn it. Mm. And then when he's got it, he runs around with it. He parades a little bit, but then he'll sit down next to it and he stares at you and will even bark at you like, hey, challenge me for the toy, right? Or he'll, you know, like he'll compel you to say, tell me to do something. Um, It was very, you know, my sister just got a new dog and so I was over at her place like socializing my dogs, my safe dogs with her um, new dog. And, you know, just so that he doesn't destroy the the kids football and stuff that's in the yard I left him with his toy and so the kids would throw the ball for him and then you know when they're done with him he then goes and sits down and just starts barking incessantly like why isn't anybody trying to like tell me to do something to earn this toy and you look at him and an, an uneducated person would be like your dog's a lunatic like he's got the thing and he's challenging you to tell him to sit because and, and people what often people say is like, he's so engaged with you, he wants to work, right? Mm-hmm. And what I think is really happening in his brain is he's so dopaminergic that he doesn't give a shit about having the ball. He wants the dopamine rush that comes from trying to earn the ball, Yeah, right? So like, that's interesting to understand. And I think that I've kind of forgot where I was fucking leading with this. I'm explaining it too much, but- that's what we see in some people as well mm. who are then trying to pursue like I must know everything about these dogs, right? Like and I must research this and understand it and even though you've told it to me, I have to go back to your original source stuff. I've just like I've heard you explain it. I've seen you practically give an example of it. I have to go back and relearn the process from the source instead of just taking your word for mm. it. That's the act of a dopaminergic person because knowing it is of no used to them. So right? they become a professional student basically. That's right. And mm. we see that and we, there's people that are that, yeah. right? Like that are con- like whether it's in our industry or others, there's people who never actually put their skills to use. Yeah. And it's not about having the skills. But anyway, so like I was saying, they've figured out where I was going with it, was that knowing it you then like dogs are slaves to their desires. They just act the way that they do and they don't they they don't understand why. Like mm. you could you'd never say to Remy like why do you want to work for the ball so much? You just I fucking do, right? You don't seem to like- it makes me feel good. Yeah, you don't mm. seem to like having it. Mm. Why do you want it so much? Because mm. every time you get it, you try to give it back to me or you demand that I do something else to make it it. And that's because he enjoys dopamine. He's not a big like serotonin or oxytocin dog, like the possession that the wind, the like the long term, he doesn't give a shit about. Mm. He's genetically engineered to be like that, right? Like because that makes him work forever, whether he gets paid or not. But do you think he would do it without being introduced to it? Or no, no. He needs first to be obs- given the obsession. It needs to be a part that, of a learned behavior. Yeah, it needs to first be like, here's something you like, fall in love with it, and now pursue it for the rest of your life. Because here's another point, which I was actually, you know, when you're on the twilight of sleep, mm-hmm. I was on the twilight of sleep the other day, and I was just in that sort of heavenly state of just drifting off into sleep, and then the word biological fulfillment came into my brain, <laughs> and then my eyes just shot open because it was like I was cast into the atmosphere, and I'm thinking, how is it biological fulfillment if it's something that we've introduced to the dog? Like, what have we never introduced it? Would it still be biological fulfillment? Mm. Well, a surrogate of it would be. Like, it's it's those d- desires to get out. So, like, well, biological fulfillment to, like, you know, this is, this is the point of all Jay's GRC-type content is, mm. like, those dogs, uh, the old school pits, people would say they were bred to fight. Yep. Whereas realistically, they were actually bred to endure pain and push through in a conflict-based game. Yep. And so they don't actually need to fight. They need a conflict-based game through which there is struggle to get to. And mm-hmm. then, you know, there's the spring pole. So like, yeah, I think so. Had we never introduced it to them, they need to be biologically fulfilled in one way or another. It's an interesting concept. And the reason that shot into my brain was I, I remember many, many years ago, this Rottweiler that... I was around this dude's place. I was just doing a lesson with a dog and the dog came from the genetic stock, you know, like the lines back then were, which were Felix echo. They were dogs back in pedigrees back then. And like, if you had this combination, right, you were guaranteed a working dog. Mm -hmm. And this dog was just inside sitting, he had an open fire and we were chatting inside about, you know, the problems he was having with his dog. And I said, did you get this from X breeder? And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, you know, has your dog got any working capability? He said, I don't know. I've, I've never tested it. And he said, the dog's never never shown me. And I said, would you mind if I had a go? Like I've got some equipment in my car. Would you mind if I had a go with the dog? 
And this dog was very poised, calm, you know, sat in front of the fire, just followed him around. Went outside, brought an arm out. The dog had never, ever seen an arm before. Within a couple of waves of the sleeve, this dog was doing four bites on the sleeve. Like mm. it was a professional. And I'm thinking to myself, this dog's like six years old. No one's ever done bite work with it, or so he says. I took him on his word. Yeah. Because I said, have you been to a club? He said, never. It's just my pet dog. So the fact is, is this dog was basically a sleeping giant sitting there by the fire, following him around in and out of his garage because he worked from home as a mechanic. And it had never been introduced to bite work, yet as soon as I introduced it to it, the dog hit it like a duck to water. Mm -hmm. But the dog didn't look unhappy, didn't look depressed. But why were you there? What was the... Oh, he was walking outside the front gates and he would have trouble getting him back sometimes. So he'd just go off and start sniffing down the road and then he'd get carried away with it. So he just said he had complaints from the neighbours and he was working on getting the dog back. So Mm -hmm. it was just... You know, we did a little RT work. and Yeah, you know, maybe I, maybe you're right. I think you could be spot on that if that- I, I don't know. It just shot it like it was something that just shot into my brain. And I'm just thinking to myself, is this something that we want it to be? So we're convincing ourselves it is biological fulfillment or are we depriving the dog of it? I don't know. Like well, it, it probably was, was It's an interesting it. line of thought. He probably was getting it from something else, you know, like his fulfillment. If he was a happy dog, he was getting it and he was being fulfilled in one way or yeah. another. I think maybe as well those kinds of – well, two things I'll say on that. I think the switches can be turned on or off, be left dormant and never turned on, and then when they're turned on, they can never be turned off. So then like he's – now that he's gone like, oh, this is bite work and I enjoy it, I want to do this forever and I'll be no longer fulfilled if I never get access to it. And I think that would be the case because like the conflict-based game, say like with pits that want to fight, mm. right – that's unavoidable because that will happen with their litter mates. So that switch gets flicked on whether you want to or not. I guess I can see your point in pits and wanting the desire to want to tackle another dog. I think that's a little different. Like when you watch greyhounds, the way they want to actually pursue a pelt, mm. you know, like I think that's a that's a little different than when we start talking about the um, the artificial application of wanting to actually introduce sleeves and, and yeah. suits and so well, forth. So I've got another theory on that. Cool. Remember, we had that dog we were going to try and use for the decoy certification. So Jay brought a dog that had been just placed to potentially be a brood bitch in the future, never done any work. And it was, I think, three when it came to the club. Very good bloodline Malinois, but never, like, was just someone's pet, right? It never done any bite work whatsoever. Yep. And I was curious. I did a little bit of an experiment. I was wearing a hoodie. She posts up the dog. I took off my hoodie and I threw it sort of obliquely across the front of the dog, right? And the dog just kind of looked at it like, the fuck are you throwing your jumper around for, you idiot, right? Mm-hmm. And then, like, no no interest in it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Then I pick up a sleeve, like a Belgian sleeve. You know, the dog's never seen a Belgian sleeve before in its life. And I throw it the exact same angle across the front of the dog. Dog lights up trying to bite it, right? It had never done bite work before in its life. Yep. And- I draw from that, I kind of reckon that we people think, oh, I've bred these really high prey drive dogs. And I think it's possible, we'll never understand this, but I think it's possible that what has been bred is a predisposition to wanting to bite French linen, right? Like, and I know that that is such a specific thing, but why? What? explain to me why else that would happen. Because a sleeve to a dog that's never worked a sleeve is – nothing of any but, interest. But how do you know the owner of the dog has never played with a toy before? Like We don't. You know, like playing it around and flipping it around the yard, which, you know, like but is- surely my, my random, like a random piece of cloth, i.e. my hoodie, is is just something similar to a sleeve, to a dog that's never worked a sleeve. I don't know. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. Right? But that's interesting to me. That it I is think. interesting. And this conversation is interesting. Like it's, I guess it comes back to- if you could interview the dog. Oh, if only. If only. If only. Yeah. And all we can go on is our theories based on what we actually observe at that point in time. But, you know, I just don't want to get into the stage myself of having that cognitive bias of thinking it appeals to my level of thinking. So, therefore, it has to be true. Mm -hmm. I love these conversations because it invokes critical thinking in yourself. You know, we talked about it with Jason Cohen when he was on the show the other day. And it does make you sit in bed at night and all of a sudden, you know, that's why my eyes shot open. I'm thinking, holy shit, what if it's something that we're actually introducing and it becomes an artificial biological fulfillment? Yeah. yeah it's yeah. fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Like the way it sends your thought processes flying around. Yeah. Mm. And so 
onto our topic of the point of diminishing return, I think that everybody's point is at a different a different stage. Mm. But I think even us right now, like what we just discussed right then, are we creating this or does a dog really need it? It doesn't like we can observe in the dog whether they need it or not. Right. Yep. So having this big drawn out conversation and, and like it's fun, <laughs> but, but it doesn't help us. It doesn't. Right? In fact, it probably hinders us because, I mean, me and you are pretty good at sort of, okay, this is the, the realm. This is distinguishing between theoretical thought play and yeah. how fun that can be. And then, oh, I've got the dog in front of me. This is what I've actually got to do. Yeah. Right. But I think it can be quite difficult like a lot of people. Certainly, there's so many in the industry that really have a hard time changing gears on that. Mm. That are like, no, I was just having this very interesting uh, theoretical conversation and it was uh, a thought experiment between two people that were enjoying it. And then now I have to go and apply my theory. And it's like, shit, is it going to work? Right. And whereas then maybe the dog gets worse. Maybe, you know. So for us, I think we're lucky that the way our brains work is that we can go like, okay, that's fun. Yep. And I can now, you know, make inferences. But, okay, I've got this problem, dog. I know exactly what to do to fix that. I'll fix yep. that in the past. I'll fix it again. Yep. I guess you're right. There's got to be a stage where you've got to look at it theoretically, and then say, okay, now that I've thought about it a little bit of time, what I really need to do is divide my time up between thinking and doing. Yeah. Mm. And I think a, a great way to do that, certainly what I'm doing, right, is trying to retrospectively apply it. So yep. come to understand, okay, here's something interesting that I've learned. Rather than try and apply that onto some poor dog who's now going to be my stooge from my learning experience. Yeah go, where have I seen that in the past? Because I can run the experiment on dogs from long gone by, right? So one of the things that, you know, again, to use my dog as an example, is one day he nearly drowned. I actually had to – have I told you about this? Yeah, where yeah. He, I had to swim out. Yep. So <laughs> – walking. Stupid dog. He's an idiot. Well, this is the thing. So he's not stupid. This is the function of the dopamine in his brain. Yeah. Right? So you know where they would park a boat? When the boat's not there, there's the buoy that, that – floats yeah. and there it looks like a big ball looks like a big ball mm. so one day he sees that and he goes oh i fucking have to have that ball and he swims out to it and grabs it but that's attached to the ground with an yeah. anchor right so he's trying to pull this ball towards me and trying to retrieve it and have it like and he just keeps sinking and he will not fucking let go of it and i'm calling him and it was before he had it was young he was a younger dog and it was before he had the type of recall that he has now yep I can't get him off of it. And he nearly killed himself. Like I'm actually convinced he would have killed himself trying to get it because the ball only floats because like, you know, it's only it's just, buoyant. it's only just better than yeah. neutrally buoyant. Yeah, it's right? just buoyant. So, but it's attached to the ground. So as he tries to swim it back, it, it's pendulum goes under the water level and yep. he's drowning. Right. And he won't, he will not let it go. Mm. Right. Now, like we just said, he's not a possessive dog. He's not a dog that never lets go of the ball. He happily spits the ball out because he wants the pursuit of the ball, but the pursuit of the ball never ended because he could never get it correctly. Yeah. And, and it was fighting back. There was a resistance in there. That's right. Mm. So, I'm calling him and calling him. He's fuck you. I'm I'm getting this ball. I literally had to run into like run in, swim out to him and choke him off of it and drag him back in <laughs> before he killed himself on it. Yeah. And we laugh and we go, oh, stupid fucking dog. But that's an effect, like because he's such a highly dopaminergic dog. Yeah. Having the ball doesn't mean two shits to him, but he couldn't get it effectively. To you got to keep getting the hit of the drug. He, well, he was so spooled up in dopamine because am I going to be able to get this thing back to the shore or not? That mm. was constantly going through his brain rather than like, you know, another dog who was less such a chaser of dopamine might just happily hold it out there and mm. be like, okay, well, I can't get it anywhere, but I have it. And I'll stay out here with it and I'll possess it out here and they tread water happily with it. Yeah. Whereas the fight to him, and that's where the fight comes from, is the, the dopamine. I guess that's why they limit the amount of morphine you can have when you're in hospitals when you're controlling the button. Because if they if you just keep getting hit to the drug, you'll happily put yourself to death. Yeah. Well, I mean, that the, the, certainly the experiments on rats with cocaine, that's exactly what they do. They forego, if, if you give the rat the opportunity to just take cocaine or water or food, they just take cocaine until they're dead. And it's not like they overdose on cocaine. They just don't do anything else. They mm. just take that. Yep. There's interesting experiments on that. You would have seen, you know, where then they put them in like a rat utopia and they actually wean themselves. So yep. it's, it's not like the chemical hooks necessarily of it. It's that it's like their life's so shit when, when, you're in a, <laughs> when you're in a cage and there's nothing but cocaine, yep. you're probably going to do a lot of it. It's the only thing that gives you something yeah. to- But if you have friends and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Anyway, so where I was also- leading with this over this long thing is 
like I've said, dogs are slaves to it. My dog just has to live within the brain chemistry that he has. Mm-hmm. But as people, we have the capacity to override this kind of thing, yeah. right? When you can identify it and go, oh. If your mind is healthy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So within, when, but when you're sort of pursuing something at the cost of others, like exactly what you just said, right? Yeah. So your pursuit of obsessively training dogs was a dopamine addiction. Yeah, right? but my mind wasn't healthy at that stage. Yeah, but that so was that, my precursor for mental health issues. That's right. But that's, mm. what, I'm, that's what I'm saying with this. Yeah. So you were, you didn't actually give a fuck about dog training. You were a dopamine addict. Absolutely. Right? And yeah. it was the pursuit of what else can I do? How mm. much better at this can I get? Right? And that was your drug. That was the vessel, right, that yep. it was dog training. Yeah. But well, I finally found something that awakened that ugly giant. Yeah. But mm. dopamine was the actual thing that yeah. you were after. Yeah, it makes sense. But then as people, we have the capacity to then go, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah. And make choices from out of it. It's our and, deductive reasoning. Yeah. And mm. and I think that's what we can do when you, you talk about the no more one more time. Mm. I think that, that the people who are pursuing the no more one more time, that can come from, well, sorry, who do the do the one more time. That can come from a couple of places because we had it in our head for a long time in dog training that you have to finish on a high, finish on a good rep, right? Yep. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence that says that's nice, but not necessary. More good reps than bad reps is what you really should finish on. Good right? enough. Yeah. Well, like if you do five reps and they're good and then you have one and it's it's bad, you're six, that's still a good session yep. because that's five good ones, one bad one. But if in the pursuit of finishing on a high, you do 10 bad ones and then finish on a good one, that's a bad session because you did six good ones yep. and 10 bad ones, yep. right? So we know that it's more about like volume of good quality reps rather than the last rep. The last rep is nice to have, being mm. correct. But anyway, I think that truly the reason, and I've spoken about this before, I think the reason that people pursue the good rep is your reinforcer is the good rep from the dog. And so when it's going good, you're on a consistent reinforcement schedule. You tell the dog to sit, he sits. Yep. You feel good, you pay him. Yep. Then one day you tell him to sit, he doesn't, you don't get your reinforcer, you get a dopamine spike mm-hmm. because now you're on a variable reinforcement schedule. And so that's why you continue to do it. And I think the more that you can understand about that, the more capable you are of observing it in yourself and saying, it's not about the dog, it's about me. Yeah, this is what's happening in my brain chemistry. Yep. I am chasing the dopamine high of in of a variable reinforcement schedule. I should stop this and I, I still have the capacity to call this a good training session mm-hmm. before I tip us over into the bad side. Yep. Now, here's the thing, point of diminishing return. I knew that shit already. We have had this conversation about that on this podcast months ago, mm-hmm. right? But yet- I gave an hour of my time yesterday to a podcast that confirmed that for me, but took it even further <laughs> to realms that aren't important that yep. actually serve to confuse me more than help me. Yep. Right. So I think it's something that we certainly I, and I think many people in the industry have to be really careful of is hitting the point of diminishing return, not just in training, but in our own education. And mm. we've been big advocates forever about, education, education, get as much info as you can, get as much info as you can, see as many things, you know, train with as many people. But I think what I wanted to, I guess, amend to that was stay within the realm of usefulness, Mm. right? Of utility. Yeah, it's got to follow like a percentage application, you know, like there's a certain application of academia that's important, but there's also a certain percentage of practicality or pragmatism that's important as well. Totally. Yeah. And that's within different people, that's going to be a different percentage, but it, it, but it should also be close to a balancing act as well. You know, like if you're looking at it, something like I would say, and I'm just plucking this figure out of the air, but I would say something like a 60, 40 split would be perfect in either, either way. You know, like, let's say you're a little bit more academic and you are sitting 60, 60% academia and then 40% in, in a pragmatic sense. I think that's healthy mm. or vice versa. If you're a pragmatic person and you're at 60% and, you know, academia is not really your strong suit, but you're still spending 40% of looking into further education and, you know, when you're hitting sticking points that you're reaching out to people or looking into it, fantastic. That's not a problem. But you've made a very interesting argument or point that some people are taking it to 95% and when they, they're spending that 5% in actual pragmatic work, then they're realizing how frustrating it is and then they think, well, now I've got to get back to the books. You well, know? this is how I like to imagine it. Mm. Imagine two buckets, right? One bucket is 
labeled theory knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that bucket has a hole drilled into the side of it halfway up. Yep. Right. And the other bucket is practical application. And it sits below the theory one next to that hole. So the way I think, and maybe I should draw a diagram, but I would normally draw this on my whiteboard if people were here, yep. is you got to pour that water into the theory one until it starts spilling out of the hole drilled halfway up of it and starts filling up the practical bucket. Yep. And now you got to start thinking about it in that way. It's only relevant to take like the knowledge that you have, that your application of this stuff, it's got to go into the theory bucket. Yep to the point where it fills and spills into the practical bucket. Yep. Right. Yeah. And it's that way you never, you should never stop learning, Yeah. but you should only learn it to an extent of which you can apply. Because so it should be laced into. Yeah. One it has to feed into it. Yep. Like your theory has to feed into the practical or else yep. it's not helpful. Yep. Right. Unless you are just a theorist, but mm. then the problem is there are many, many theorists out there who don't apply and therefore the theory is not never tested. Yeah. Right. Unless they utilize it for, people to test it for them yeah and that would be part of the same system yeah yeah but anyway that's my thoughts on it that's very fascinating and very deep well (laughs) (laughs) that's going to be one of those conversations now where it's going to wake me up up. yeah 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 the disappointing thing is for me my best thinking happens at night Mm -hmm. like that's when all my neurons seem to say hey now is the time to mm. start thinking about things. When the sky goes dark, that's when my mind starts thinking. Some people wake up in the morning and they're like, they're on. You know, they're thinking well during the day. I'm not thinking like that. But it, as soon as I'm sort of getting ready for bed, that's when my mind goes, just before we go to bed, why don't we think about the theory of relativity? <laughs> <laughs> well, Interestingly and excitingly, we have a new project coming up Mm. that that will feed perfectly into. Absolutely. What should we say about that? Nothing? Uh, I think we should just let people know that we've got an interesting project coming up. A new and exciting project. A new and exciting project that we've been, well, it was actually, you sparked it. You know, I've had an idea and I've convinced Glenn. Didn't take much didn't convincing because no. it's a pretty good idea. Yeah, it's a very good idea. I liked, I like where it's going. I know this is cruel that we're teasing you with this, but I believe after speaking with Pat that it'll be worth a wait. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it should be fun for us to do anyway. Yeah. Regardless. I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, I think for me that the key takeaways were from what I've been hashing this out live with you now and sort of getting my own brain vomit into this microphone mm. is that good enough is exactly that. And I think that's, that's important for people to understand like good enough. Like you set your criteria of what you need and the moment you reach that, like use it rather yep. than keep going for like, this is amazing. How good can I get it? Mm. Cause you are going to cross over into the point of diminishing return. Like there's people and you see this all the time. People who have, you know, like I don't want to keep like it, this happens in IGP. People won't hit the field until they're guaranteed a 99 in obedience. Right. And therefore never hit the field. Right. Yeah. Where it, So like, no, you're, limitations and go like, this is good enough. This Mm. is, this is, this is good enough to get the result that I want and know the result that you want really clearly. But then also within your, your, uh, you know, investigation into knowledge and that sort of thing, I think it has to stay applicable. Mm. Right. And, and it's interesting to diversify and see where can, what can we draw from this industry over here and apply to us? And that's fun. Those are good, fun thought experiments. Everybody should be involved in that, but it's got to be relevant. Interesting listening to you talking about this. A while back, I watched that movie, A Star Is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating because she was this talented person all along and never had the confidence to get out on stage and push herself until he drove her to do it. Like she had the voice. People said that she had the voice and the talent, even her father believed that she had the voice, but he kept referring to Sinatra. He said there were hundred guys like Sinatra, but he was just the guy that got out on stage. He had the the image, the talent. And he said, but there's, there was a hundred other guys that could sing as well as he did, but they never had the confidence to do it. Mm. And that's an a, opportunity. I an, think an opportunity. That. That's right. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like your stars line up sometimes to have these things happen, but I'm listening to you putting that tail together of people that won't get out on the field till they're guaranteed a 99. I've seen so many people agonize over those same sort of situations before. And it really is heartbreaking because you can see talent and, you know, it's again, to parallel to the movie, the star is born. They've got a story to tell. They really have. And they could be fantastic trainers too, if they only had the confidence or the ability to do it, but they just seem to be obsessed in line with this conversation 
with spending more time on the theory than they actually do getting out on the pragmatic side. Like I know you and I and many others in this industry before have been very disappointed watching other people get accolades and limelight when they really don't deserve it sometimes. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about dog training or anything else. They just get in front of a camera. Sometimes these people are dangerous to the industry or other industries, and yet they seem to get like a good following of people, Mm -hmm. but they just have the confidence to do it. Where the other people who really would be better at it are more informed, have better information keep saying to themselves, oh, I just don't think I know enough. I don't feel Mm -hmm. that, you know, like the message that I could get across to people would be well-received. Dunning-Kruger. Dunning-Kruger, exactly. And yet when I've sat in a room with them and had a conversation with them over a beer or something like that, I've thought to myself, my God, you know, this person is just a fucking genius. Yeah. They are a genius. And I'm in awe of them. Like they make me intimidated with their knowledge and what they're talking about. And yet they won't get out and do it. Mm. You know, you put them in front of a crowd of people and their, their knees go weak. Mm. And that breaks my heart. That actually makes me really sad that mm. I'm in the presence of, of a great person who just won't do it. You try and help them and push them and shape them into, into doing it. Like, you know, you, I've had conversations with people before and I said, you really need to go. You know, like this is your time. You need to, you need to tell the world what you just told me. And, and they won't do it. Mm. That to me... That's a heartbreaking moment when I actually see that sort of thing. But, you know, sometimes you can never really get past that point. I yeah. don't know what it takes to get people to that point sometimes. You gotta, you gotta, they got to be ready. They have to be. It has to be, yeah. It's like when people are being fat shamed and so forth and they, it doesn't help them. It doesn't make them want to go to the gym. I mean, I've seen people picked on being at school and so forth and it's never made it. In fact, it's gone in the reverse direction. It's mm-hmm. only made their situation worse. But something inside them, if they do decide to go, something inside them, they're doing it for themselves. Mm. Like one day they're sitting there and then they decide to get off the couch and do something about it. And they start with, you know, running to the gate and then back. And all of a sudden they think to themselves, well, that wasn't so bad. So what if I run up to the telephone pole? And what if I run longer than that? And then you can see this person a year later and it's it's a different person. Mm. Different person with different feelings and different motivations and so forth. But it's ignition. Brain really. chemistry. It's brain chemistry, but it's it's also ignition. Oh, totally. You know, when we talk about Daniel Coyle, the talent code. Yeah. And and it's a point which you say to people so many times, I'm not going to do that for you. You need the ignition within to do it yourself. Yeah. I'm I'm not here to I'm here to give you the information, but you need to you need to push yourself to come to me to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, the responsibility of the teacher versus the learner. Isn't like it? The teacher's responsibility is to teach, but mm. the learner has the responsibility to learn. Yeah. Right? Like it's not just like you you can't just be like, okay, you have to do whatever it takes to get it into it. It's like, no, 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 you have to you have to do whatever it takes to understand it. Mm. Right? And you've got to get the right combination of those two together. I remember I had a teacher at school that used to say that. He's like, you, you guys think I'm the teacher? Like, no, no, I'm the information presenter. Like, yeah. I don't give a shit whether you're, he was not a great teacher, but he was like, I don't give a shit whether you understand this or not. Like I am presenting the information. It's yep. up to you. To, I'm always here. Yeah. It's mm. up to you to bother to actually understand it. Yeah. It took me a long time. Like I'm on board with that now. At the time I was like, this fucking guy. Right. Yeah. Because you kind of, when somebody says that to you without you understanding that, you're kind of offended by that. Cause you kind of think, oh, you lazy piece of shit. Yeah. yeah. But their reality is. I'm always here. I'm still going to give the information no matter what. It really is up to you to go home and do something further with yeah. it. Like take what I've given you and then go beyond that. Well, what he meant was motivation. Yeah. Like it's ignition. Like it he, is ignition. You, ask, you ask him a question, he'll answer it. And if you don't get it, he'll find a way to explain it to you correctly, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it was like, I'm not going to beg you to understand this shit. You're the one that has to pass the test. Mm. I'm presenting the information and will in whatever way it takes for you to understand it, but you have to first want to, mm. right? And I think that's important. Anyway, it's deep conversation. Very deep conversation. It's been a good one. It certainly got my mind ticking over. Mm. What I liked even more about it is you and I went to talk about it before we got to air and you went, no, no. Stop. Chop, chop. We're going to have this on air. And I'm, I'm glad we did because I had no idea what we were talking about today. Yeah. All you did was gave me a subject line yeah. and we – Hashed it out on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It was fun. All right. That's it. That's it. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you would like to support the show, please do that via Patreon. We have some really exciting Patreon content coming out. 
always. We're kind of always trickling out cool stuff. I think um, so. If you want to support the show, get some cool merch from Teespring. You can look good while you support the show. Just like Jason Cohen did when he was on Skype with us or Zoom with us the other day. Skype? Mm-hmm. Skype? Yep. Skype, yeah. And if you want to ask some questions, get some feedback, that kind of thing, do it in the group so that we can group source that information. It's the uh, the Canine Paradigm discussion group on Facebook. If it's a question of a personal nature, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. You've got your very cool voice going on today <laughs> like you're a radio host at yeah. a late night show and you're about to talk about a love yeah. dedication. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, there it all is. Goodbye, friends. Bye. Music. Music.